If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 155 of the Leading Learning Podcast. This time around, we talk with Danny Eaney, CEO of the online business education company Miracy and author of the recently released book, Leveraged Learning, How the Disruption of Education Helps Lifelong Learners and Experts. Before we turn to the conversation with Danny, though, we want to thank our sponsor for the fourth quarter of 2018. And our sponsor this quarter is Review My LMS, a collaboration between our company, Tagoras, and 100 Reviews. As the name suggests, Review My LMS is a site where users can share and access reviews of learning management systems. And the focus is specifically on systems that are a good fit for learning businesses, meaning organizations that market and sell lifelong learning. Contribute a review and you get access to all existing and future reviews, and there are already well over 100 on the site. And if you don't have a review to contribute, there's also a subscription option. For details, check out ReviewMyLMS.com. So Jeff, tell us a bit about what you and Danny cover. Well, I was really excited to have this conversation with Danny. Um, he's someone that I've known and, and followed for quite a while, and I view him really as the consummate edupreneur. As you mentioned, he's the CEO of Miracy, and through his work there, he's helped literally thousands of people create, launch, and sell online courses. And Miracy is particularly well known for its Course Builders Laboratory Training Program, and we'll be sure to link to information about that in the show notes. But this conversation was really focused on Danny's new book, as you mentioned, Leveraged Learning, and, and really getting at some of the, the core messages of that book. Now, for anyone who wants a, a comprehensive and insightful look into how the educational landscape has changed, particularly in the worlds of higher education and adult lifelong learning, Leverage Learning really is a must read. And we talk about some of those major changes in our conversation, but more importantly, we talk about the opportunities that they represent, or in some cases, the challenges or even dangers for learning businesses that don't respond to them quickly enough. Well, I know that Danny is really focused on making sure people are aware of how the learning landscape has changed. Um, and in fact, we should be sure to point out that he's offering a completely free web-based version of the Leveraged Learning book as part of an effort to make sure as many people as possible will be able to read it. That's right. And we'll be sure to link to that free version in the show notes. Definitely, we should do that. And you know, whether you, dear listener, buy a copy or access the free version, Leveraged Learning is a book that we really do recommend to all our listeners. And of course, right now we recommend though that you listen to the conversation between Jeff and Danny. So let's hit play on that right now. Hello out there. I'm Jeff Cobb. This is the Leading Learning Podcast, and today I'm joined by Danny Eaney. Danny is a lifelong entrepreneur and CEO of the online business education company, Miracy. He is also a best-selling author who has written nine books, and it's the latest of his books, Leveraged Learning, How the Disruption of Education Helps Lifelong Learners and Experts with Something to Teach. That's going to be a big focus of this episode. Danny, I am really just truly thrilled to have you here. Welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. 
Jeff, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, really excited about this conversation. Well, it's been too long since we've caught up. A lot has happened in the meantime, um, but you've been continuing with the day-to-day work of your company, Miracy, and I, I introduced you as the CEO of an online business education company, but can you say a bit more about what that means? I mean, what is it that you and others at Miracy do on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, absolutely. So there are a lot of people out in the world who have real substantive expertise in their field, expertise that would be valuable for others to have access to. So we support them in taking that expertise, packaging it up into um, a, a format like an online course that is valuable and impactful to others. We teach them how to monetize that, how to market it, how to get paying students into those programs. So we teach them how to do that. And then more broadly, we support people in building expertise-driven businesses. And if I'm correct, you've now done that with thousands of people. Yes, yes, absolutely. Wow. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing work. I can imagine uh, it has to be really engaging work on a day-to-day basis. And I know that you, you often speak about it. Um, you've written a lot about it. Uh, in, in fact, you've written nine books uh, at this point. And I've just been devouring the latest one, Leveraged Learning. And as someone who's familiar with your previous books, this, this one just felt a little bit different. Um, I mean, you synthesized really just a, a tremendous amount of research. Uh, you know, kudos for, for that. Um, and at the same time, you really seem to be on just a, a mission, uh, in a sense, to, to make sure that people truly understand our current situation with education. Is that a fair characterization? I mean, is this, is this a mission for you? And if it is, what's, what's driving that? Uh, it's a very fair characterization. It, it is a mission. It's something that I just care deeply about. I think it's very, very important. Uh, it's also fair to say that this book is different from things I've written in the past. Yes, it's different in terms of the content and the the you know everything that went into it. It's it's much more deeply researched and things I've done in the past. But I think the biggest difference is who I'm writing to. So all of the books I've written historically, except for a children's book, which is not for business professionals, it's for Mm -hmm. kids, Um, but all of the adult-facing books that I've written have been written to online entrepreneurs, people who, like I said, the the people that we serve in my company, they're experts who want to monetize their expertise and reach more people. And this book is for those people as well, but it's really much more broadly for anyone who has a stake in the future of education, which, you know, as a marketer, I cringe when people say my book is for everyone, and Mm -hmm. I won't go that far, but this is important for a lot of people. The reality is that, you know, the United States population is currently burdened by a trillion and a half dollars in college debt. College is, you know, 1.9 trillion out of 4.4 trillion of the global education economy. These are bigger than, it's a lot bigger than just, you know, experts who want to build and sell online courses. It's something that affects just about everyone. The system is fundamentally broken and crippling an enormous number of people, preventing them from achieving what they're trying to achieve in life. That's just, that's not right. Well, and, and I hear you too about, uh, you know, book can't be for everybody, but this one definitely strikes me as, um, this may also be a term that people will cringe at, but it's, it's a mass market book because really, you know, most people should be tuning into this. They're going to be impacted in one way or another by the education system. And, and speaking of the education system, I mean, you, you take name, you take aim at uh, really a, a number of issues, um, not just with the system, but about how we tend to go about teaching and learning in general. And I'd love to know, you know, what were some of the most surprising or or even shocking findings for you out of the huge amount of research that you did? 
Well, this was a really interesting process. You know, when you when you work on a book, you start obviously with a thesis. You start with like, you know, here's what I think I'm writing about. But then you do all this research, and sometimes it contradicts things that you were thinking. And that's, you know, when you're writing about a problem, that's actually encouraging. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's great. Um, but often it's like you, you dig into the research, and you're like, I had no idea it's this broken. Right? So I did not know the magnitude of college debt. I did not know um, the scale to which a college degree, in fact, does not create a lot of the outcomes we thought. Like I kind of went into it thinking, okay, you know, college and education more broadly. It's important to emphasize that you know the book is not just about college. It's about education across the board, um, past past elementary and secondary education. Um, but just how broken it is, how little it actually delivers to the people going through it, how um, systemically. The, the, the challenges are just distributed across the entire landscape. And, you know, the conclusion I really arrived at that was not my conclusion going in, but I don't think college is fixable, mm. right? I went into it thinking it's broken and there's a lot that they can do and it'll be really hard. But, like, there are two chapters in the book about the economics of why it's just not – I don't think it's fixable in the context of college. I think it's going to be something new and different that that comes instead. So that was really striking to me. Uh, and some of the things that were most striking were is the frustrating thing of writing a book and working with a with a publisher is that at some point the manuscript is locked and it goes to the printer and you know then it's done. But you know it's like the moment you lock the manuscript, you keep finding new research. And it's like wow, I really would have loved to include that. So an example of this is. Um, you know, we all have this expectation that going to college means more in terms of lifelong earnings. And the data actually shows that that's not really the case. Huh. Um, and it's uh, so a good way of thinking about it is um, that it's like, you know, imagine 10 guys sitting in a bar. They all make the median um, American household income, which is just over $60,000. And Bill Gates walks into the bar. So the average income of each person in the bar has like shot up to like a billion dollars. But none of these guys actually got any richer. So it's true that when you look at all of college graduates and you look at the average earnings, yes, it's higher. But if you filter out the Ivy League, if you filter out certain vocation-granting degrees like medicine or engineering, which lead into very high-paying vocations, filter those things out, and a lot of those earning gains as an average, they disappear. And there's also the confounding variables that college graduates tend to be concentrated in major metro areas where the cost of living and therefore the income is higher. Also, all this data is voluntarily self-reported. So people who are excited about how well they're doing tend to be overrepresented. So all of this is like really interesting confounding data. But what really jumped out to me um, is this research I discovered, unfortunately, after the manuscript was locked, which is, you know, we all have this idea that going to the Ivy League will make you super successful in life. And it's true that, you know, as an average, Harvard graduates will earn substantially more than, for example, Penn State graduates, Penn State being a good but not Ivy League school. Um, But the thing is, it's a lot harder to get into Harvard, right? Right. So presumably they're selecting a, a just more austere group of people. So in this research, they looked at people who applied to both Harvard and Penn State, got into both Harvard and Penn State, but chose to go to Penn State for, you know, whatever reason, their their boyfriend or girlfriend was going there or uh. it was close to family or whatever. And they found that 
when you look at people who could have gone to Harvard but didn't, the earning difference disappears. Right, So really, the reason Harvard graduates are making so much money is because Harvard accepts the best and the brightest. But if you have what it takes to get into Harvard, like the data would seem to suggest that Harvard is not actually adding all that much to the equation. And you know, it was striking to me because I knew that this was the case kind of you know with with most higher education, but I would have thought that at least in the top tier, that would be like the exception that proves the rule. But even the top tier doesn't seem to be the exception. Now, that, that's really interesting. I mean, first of all, that economic argument about, you know, you'll earn more throughout your life. I feel like that's been sort of the, the last stand uh, for people who defend higher education, that that's still there, you know, as an economic stat. But, but as you make very clear, it's, it's not really there. And then what you're saying about the, the, the Ivy Leagues, I mean, that makes complete sense, you know, when you, when you describe the, the research around it. Um, I have to say, you know, I, I've thought a lot about higher education, but it's not really my focus, and I hadn't thought about so much is it fixable or not. Uh, I, I definitely came away from your book feeling much more skeptical about whether whether it can be fixed uh, or not. Um, and, and I like that you kind of divide up this, the different roles of, of education. So there, you know, there may be some things that, that something like higher education is still good for, sort of more foundational type stuff perhaps. But, but you introduced this concept of last mile education that, um, that, that really resonated with me because I think it, it's, it describes the world that I live and, and work in. Would you, could you tell listeners a bit more about um, what that means and how you see that functioning in the future of education? Yeah, absolutely. So I essentially divide um, post-secondary education into three categories. There's foundational adult education, which is currently done mostly through college. Um, and specifically, we're talking about non-vocation granting college experiences. So, you know, medical school or law school or engineering school or, you know, anything, any degree that actually qualifies you for a specific job as opposed to jobs that say, you know, college required, but they don't specify which, right. that would not fit into this. Um, foundational adult education is the kind of the, the old uh, trope of, you know, we train you for nothing, but we educate you for everything, except unfortunately the data show that, you know, we don't really educate <laughs> you for happen. everything, yeah. Yeah. but that's foundational adult education. Then last mile is the bridge between whatever the foundation is and a career. And, and, you know, hat tip to Ryan Craig, who's got a new book that just came out called a new you. So uh, which is excellent. Ryan Craig's work is uh, is really spectacular in this field. So he coined, to my knowledge, the term "last mile education." But it it you know kind of draws off of this idea in, for example, telecom. The hard part is not wiring the comp- the country in broad strokes. The hard part is the last mile from the main wiring to individual people's houses. So in in the context of education, last mile refers to the bridge between your foundation and whatever your career is. And so that could be something really elaborate, like um, you know medical school, which is years and years and years of, of training and then apprenticeship and all that kind of stuff. Or it could be something as simple as a coding boot camp or an apprenticeship, but something that you know takes whatever your foundation is and then qualifies you for a specific job that you want to get into. And then the balance is um, continuing adult education. And this is where, you know, I work professionally. I teach people how to build courses that usually fall into this last mile education. Uh, sorry, not last mile, the, the continuing adult education category. And uh, this is a huge and growing opportunity because one of the big transitions we're seeing in education is this shift from a lot of just-in-case education at the start of our career to a lot less just-in-case and a lot more just-in-time 
throughout our career. And that's where continuing education really shines and, and fills a need. And so it sounds like that that's a huge opportunity area along. And I, I mean, there's obviously a lot of opportunity in the last mile uh, area as well. Um, but but those two together, it sounds like much more than than the foundational area are really, really where the future lies from, from your perspective. Well, no, I wouldn't exactly say that. I think there's a huge amount of opportunity in that foundation as well. I just don't think there's a huge amount of opportunity for the, you know, traditional four-year liberal arts college, because I think it's just doing a lousy job of it. But there's a huge need for it, and the need is very different. So I can imagine a future where, you know, there is a really strong foundational adult education program, and it's going to be kind of like a winner-take-all market, right? Mm -hmm. You, You don't need... A thousand companies doing what Uber does. You just need one. The same is good, or you know, two or three. The same is good for Airbnb. The same is good for Facebook, etc. And if we're looking at one foundational curriculum, it gives you all the foundational skills to be generally valuable to society and valued by society. It, it makes a lot more sense to have one winner that can specialize and and achieve really good economies of scale to deliver it well. So nobody's doing that well yet, and there's a good opportunity for that. Last mile will tend to be um, vocation by vocation, so that can be centralized to some degree. Um, The interesting opportunity for the people that I work with, that I teach how to build online courses, is in that continuing education bucket because it's it's enormous, but it's also incredibly fragmented. Mm -hmm. And it can only be delivered effectively because of how quickly everything is changing. It can only be delivered effectively by someone who is on the cutting edge of their field. So whereas historically, you know, we've looked for great teachers who also know the subject matter, because things are moving so quickly now, you can only get this information and this training from people who are subject matter experts who are also great teachers. And so that that really leads squarely into kind of the world that I work in on a day-to-day basis and where a lot of uh, the listeners to this podcast are. And that, that's kind of that traditional world of continuing education and professional development. Um, I'm wondering from your perspective, you know, you're talking about practitioners who can also teach. You know, most of these organizations themselves are not practitioners. They have to make use of, of practitioners. Do you Do you feel like traditional providers, whether it's trade and professional associations, um, college continuing education divisions, I mean, are they going to be able to be nimble enough to, to thrive in, the, in this environment that, that you're talking about? Um, it's a really tough question. And also the answer is probably not going to be an across the board, you know, yes or no. It's mm-hmm. going to be a bit of both. But um, it's it's really interesting. You know, some of the th- one of the things that I explored in the book is where does disruption come from, right? When you've got a structure that's very unsustainable, it's got to change. Where does that come from? And when you look at the incumbent versus any individual challenger, mm-hmm. the odds are very heavily weighted towards the incumbent. But in aggregate, when you look at the incumbent versus you know all challengers that could arise the odds are very stacked towards the challengers and there's a reason why uh, disruption tends to come from the outside. Yeah, definitely. So if, if you, if you happen to be a challenger at this point, or I guess if you happen to be an incumbent, either, either way, you know, if you want to jump into the education business or, you know, make sure you hold on to what you've got and grow it. What are, what are some of the most critical pieces of advice that, that you tend to give people? Um, well, 
obviously it'll depend on their specific scenarios, but I think right. one one broad market shift or, or industry shift that's really important to um, to think about and plan for is that people's expectations from education has changed a lot. Um, for most of the history of human education, as much as you know, some pockets of it like to pretend otherwise, education has mostly been about transferring knowledge, mm-hmm. right? There, there's the old Mark Twain joke that uh, education is the transmission of ideas from the teacher's lecture notes to the student's lecture's notes without mm-hmm. going through the heads of either, right? So it's it's right. not that extreme, <laughs> but you know, it, it, there was an important role of knowledge transfer because there was no other way to do it. Right. Right. You know, if, if, if I don't explain it to you, how else are you going to hear about it? But today we live in an era where information, knowledge is abundant, right? Just about everything you could want to know is a Google search or Alexa query away. And so the need of, of what education has to do has changed. Education is much less about transmitting information and much more about delivering competency and capability. And that's just a much harder thing to do, right? We're moving away from information to, to more transformation. Um, and it's especially challenging because in parallel, we're also moving from um, education being mostly mandatory, right? You're there because you have to, to mm-hmm. education being volitional. Right? I choose whether I want to do it. I choose when I want to do it. I choose how I want to consume it. And there's a, you know, a wonderful side to all this proliferation of choice, which is it creates a lot of flexibility and access. But the challenge is that it also makes it a lot harder for people to end up, to, to end up consuming. Right? It's, you know, it's, it's very common in a college environment when the paper is due um, you know, on midnight at, at, you know, on Thursday at midnight, then a lot of papers get submitted on Thursday at midnight because there's a deadline. Right. But absent the deadline, if I can watch the video and do the work anytime I want, I can also choose to do it never, right? It can be tomorrow and tomorrow can never come because there's always something I'd rather do today. You know, essentially the the competition for someone's attention is not, you know, temporary until the deadline hits. It's constant, right? You're, you're essentially competing with Netflix and Game of Thrones for people's attention. And education was not designed to to compete with Netflix, right? If, if you really are looking for entertainment, even TED Talks, which are fantastic and the best presenters in the world, will really struggle to compete with Game of Thrones because, <laughs> you know, just different, different right. goals and different intentions. So, you know, the big thing that people need to think about is as I'm designing curriculum, it's less about what do I want to teach or even what do people want to learn and more about, you know, having learned it, how good at it do they have to be? Mm-hmm. And there, there are kind of three steps in a learning process. The first is the consumption of the content, the ideas. The second is the application of what I've learned. And the third is feedback on how well I've got it and what needs to change. And so we need to shift a lot of our work away from the consumption part. Like that still needs to happen, but that's not enough. And spend a lot more of our time with our students on the application and the feedback, which is where real competency comes from. And, and so that might be a good uh, place to to talk about the title of the book some, because I think you're getting there towards what I think is the, the heart of this concept uh, of leveraged learning, which I took as sort of, you know, it, partly it's the teacher, partly it's the, the learner, um, both working together to try to really take learning to where it, it's possible for learning to go. Um, but those are my words. Could you talk a little bit more about why you chose you know, that, that phrase, leveraged learning, as the, as the title for this book? 
Uh, yeah. So, so through most of the history of education, there's been this trade-off, right? Either I work more closely and more intensely and provide a much more immersive and enriching experience to a few people, or I essentially water it down hmm. and work with a lot more people. Right, But the choice is basically, do I help a few people very much, or do I help a lot of people a little? Right, A professor can you know, have 20 people in, a, in an intensive survey class where they're like discussing ideas and collaborating and all that, or you know, they can have 600 people in a lecture hall. But that's kind of the trade-off. And, and this has been the trade-off for a long time, and this is what has prevented us from getting a lot of people to where they want to go. Um, there's fascinating research that was conducted in the 80s, so this is not new, um, by Benjamin Bloom. And what he did was, um, he was working with children, but I think the, the concept generalizes to adults as well. He had um, his control class go through a regular you know, class material. Then he had two variations. So variation A was doing the same thing, same curriculum, but just taking a mastery approach to learning. And all that means is it's somewhat self-paced, right? You don't progress to level two until you've mastered level one. And then the second control, version B, they had a mastery approach to learning and individual instruction for each child, basically a tutor for each child. And they found that the first variation, variation A, mastery approach to learning, performed one standard deviation above the norm of the control class. And the mastery learning plus um, individualized instruction, the tutoring, the, the variation B, performed two standard deviations above the control. So essentially, the average student that received the mastery approach to learning and individual instruction performed at the 99th percentile of the regular class. Right, So we've known, essentially since the 80s, what it takes to help the average person, the average student, perform at the 99th percentile in this somewhat limited context, of course. The challenge is that we don't have the time or the money to actually do it, right? Providing individual instruction to every student and tutoring and all these kinds of things and adjusting the pace of the curriculum is not practical when you have one teacher for 30 students. But what we can do through the things that technology are making possible and the customization and the individualization, you know, we were talking earlier about how there can be one centralized source of that foundational adult education. So it's not that people need to necessarily change what they're spending on education. We just need to much better invest it. And that allows us to transcend that trade-off of help a lot of people a little or help a little bit of people a lot. You know, it, it's allowing us to finally move towards this place of helping a lot of people and deeply help them, which is really exciting. That's great. Yeah. So it's not, it's not just sheer numbers or sheer volume of reaching people, but reaching them and making, you know, helping the learning actually happen um, because mm -hmm. you know how to do that as an instructor and you help the, the learners understand how to do that as, as learners uh, in, in the process. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, as a result of uh, having done all this research, having written this book, um, I mean, is there anything that you plan to do differently at Miracy based on all of this? Um. Yes and no. And I say yes because, you know, the research we do and the new ideas we're exposed to are constantly shaping our, our ideas and our work. And no because, you know, I started writing the book because I already had certain ideas about what's going on. And we've mm -hmm. been running tests internally around how do we act on these ideas from well before I was working on the book. Um, and we continue to. So one of the things that we had started doing in the last couple of years and we're going to be leaning a lot more into is um, in the book I talk about kind of a triangle of learning where, you know, one corner is knowledge because, 
you know, it's the base, it's the foundation, but you still need to deliver it, right? If people don't learn something new, then there's nothing to build on. But then you want to help them develop insight, which is about connecting the dots and drawing connections and seeing patterns and essentially being able to extract from these ideas something new. So insight really lives at that intersection between creativity and critical thinking. So it's not enough to just teach the material. It's also about teaching the skills of being able to do that. And doing that is difficult. Um, another thing that you know I, I encountered, unfortunately, after the book went to print, um, but there's really interesting research about flow and flow states. And if you're looking to achieve a flow state, the balance of difficulty to to your ability is supposed to be 104%. Mm. So essentially, it's 4% harder than your best. So you're like right in that zone of proximal development. You're really being pushed. And staying in that zone is really hard. And some people persevere and succeed, and many people don't. They quit. And so the third leg of that stool is fortitude. It's it's everything that comes under the umbrella of positive psychology research. So teaching people to develop the skills of grit, of resilience, of mindfulness, of non-attachment, of optimism. All these things that research shows us are much more correlated with long-term, lifelong success. And you know that applies within the context of a learning experience as well. I'll have to check out that uh, research about flow. That's just a concept that I really love. And, and I'll mention to, to listeners that throughout this book, um, you do a couple of things that I really like. You do a lot that I like in the book. But um, you know, at the end of each question, uh, in the end of each question, end of each chapter, you ask questions um, to, to help people you know, really try to internalize uh, what you've been telling them. You also list a number of great uh, sources uh, of information, so books, you know, that uh, that people can refer to. Um, and I'm thinking of, you know, uh, Cheek Sent Me High and, you know, his book on, on flow as, as I'm saying this. Um, so, I, you know, for all sorts of reasons, but that being another one, uh, uh, definitely check out the book. As, as we're wrapping up, um, you know, it's been great to have you uh, here to talk about leverage learning, Danny. But um, we do also like to, to focus in on, on our guests personally um, while they're here. This is a, a podcast about learning and about lifelong learning. So I want to ask you just, just one final uh, parting question and, and one that focuses on your own personal learning. Um, and that's, what is one of the most powerful learning experiences you've been involved in as an adult since finishing your formal education? Um, well, I mean, the, the timing on that is uh, interesting in terms of where you measure. So, so my educational background is that I quit high school when I was 15 to start my first business. I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. I went back to school about a decade ago, got an MBA, which in hindsight, which is a huge, it was just a huge waste of time and money. So, mm. You know, I have an elementary school diploma and I have an MBA. So my, you know, when I finished my formal education, it's like hard to pinpoint right. that date. Um, but actually, one of the the best learning experiences for me in, in the last year has been writing this book because I started with the the big idea of what I was trying to communicate, and then it was time to dig into research. And we, you know, we went deep into the research. There are over a hundred books that we reviewed, and you know, journal articles, and and you name it. Um, and you know, of course, reading hundreds and hundreds of books, I could have done it if I had you know years. But so we involved my whole team, and basically I had people um, read books, write reports. So I got 20 or 30-page summaries with key ideas, key quotes, and page stamps. So I could go in to the original literature and find the, the ideas and really understand them. 
So digging into all of that was a very strong process of accelerated learning, turning that into the book, you know, writing a draft is, is, you know, you're taking a lot of raw ideas and then forcing yourself to think through them enough to organize your thoughts, to turn them into a book, and then having lots of very lengthy involved discussions with very smart people who didn't necessarily agree with me. Hmm. Um, I, I think that's one of the best ways to learn is, um, you know, a lot of people know the term straw man, right? You know, when you put up a straw man of, of a, per, a perspective you disagree with, the opposite of that is strong manning, right? So talking to someone who's really smart, who disagrees with you, because that's what really challenges your thinking. And I had to do all of that and do it like in, in a short amount of time just because I was putting this book together. So um, th- this was one of the best learning experiences for me in, in quite a while. And I'm I'm kind of excited to repeat it. I mean, both because I have other things to say as I develop my thinking, but also just because it was really fun and really interesting. No, you de- definitely have me wanting to to try it. I've I've taken much more of the the solo approach to writing my book. So I did I did have collaboration at a co-author on my first book, and that was great to be able to you know have that back and forth with a co-author. But I can see you know really being able to work with a team collaboratively, uh, which I can see that could just be a fantastic experience. So um, you know, thanks thanks for sharing that with listeners. If listeners want to know more about you, and I know I know they're going to want to know more about you, I know they're going to want to know more about Miracy and and of course the book Leverage Learning. Where where should they go? Um, well, I, again, the book is um, something I'm very excited about, very proud of. It's uh, other than my kids, it's the best thing I've I've ever made. <laughs> um, and so I would love for everyone who's listening to this to go to Amazon and buy hundreds of copies for everybody they know. Um, but a, a good first step is because, uh, you know, as we discussed, I make my living as a business educator. I don't mm-hmm. make money selling books. And I just want the word to get out about these ideas. So if you've heard this and you're like, wow, this is awesome, I've got to read the book, by all means, yes, go to Amazon and do that. Um, it's called Leveraged Learning. Um, or you could just go to leveragedlearningbook.com and the entire book is there online. It will be free in perpetuity because I just want people to be exposed to these ideas. My presumption is that if you like what you're reading, you're not going to want to read 65,000 words on a website, but you can skim and find whatever ideas are most interesting to you. You can forward pages, share ideas. Um, so, you know, however works best for you to get your feet wet, you can buy the book where, where good books are sold, which, you know, these days is mostly Amazon right. <laughs> or, or just go to leveragedlearningbook.com. Well, great. Well, we will make sure that we have a link to both of those in the show notes for this episode, as well as a link to Miracy. And Danny, thanks so much for coming on the Leading Learning Podcast. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you so, so much. And thank you to everyone who's, uh, who's been listening. That wraps up our interview with Danny Eaney. To get show notes for this episode, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 155. As part of the show notes, we are going to provide links to access the free version of Danny's book, as well as how to get information about the Course Builders Laboratory. And when you check out the show notes, you'll also see the various options for subscribing to the podcast. And there are many ways. There's iTunes, there's RSS, there are different podcatchers you can use, many ways to get leading learning. And if you're getting value out of what you hear, we'd be truly grateful if you would subscribe. It it helps us get some data on the impact of what we're doing. And we'd be grateful if you would take a minute to give us a rating on iTunes. You can go to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes. That will put you in the right place. Jeff and I 
personally appreciate your ratings and reviews, but even more importantly, those reviews and ratings play a really important role in helping the podcast to pop up when would-be listeners are searching for content on learning and leading. So we really uh, invite you and encourage you to leave a rating and a review for the Leading Learning Podcast today. And we'd be grateful if you'd take a minute to visit our sponsor this quarter, Review My LMS. Salise and I put a lot of time and energy into the Leading Learning Podcast, and one of the key reasons we're able to do that is because we're able to generate revenue through other sources like Review My LMS. So please visit ReviewMyLMS.com, and if you can, contribute a review to help others find the right platform for their needs. And we hope you'll tell others about the podcast. You can send a tweet by going to leadinglearning.com slash share. That will give you some pre-populated language to use. Or if tweeting isn't your thing, pick the social network or other medium of your preference and spread the good word. Thanks again. And we'll see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast. <laughs>